0: Nathan, last week kicked off for us a series that we have entitled, Who is Jesus? Because it's easy for us when we say Jesus, and we have a decent amount of us in this room, we might all have different answers to who we would say Jesus is. Hopefully there's slight variations and not big ones, but nonetheless, our ideas of Jesus can be different But as we look to Jesus throughout the Gospels, and as we look to Jesus throughout his many miracles that he has done, we begin to see more of the character of Jesus as we look at what he did. Nathan last week preached beautifully. I would encourage you, if you weren't here, go back and listen to that sermon. I know for me in my life, Nathan basically read my mail, so thank you, Nathan. Um, But he talked about Jesus calming the storm, and about how Jesus had that authority over even weather patterns to be able to even point to us and to say that maybe we have a storm in our life and we need to trust Jesus as he's in our boat. And today we're actually looking at one of the more interesting and, to be honest, troublesome miracles of Jesus. I don't know why I chose this one to preach, but here we are. Not everything is what it may appear to be or as the saying goes looks can be deceiving from a distance what might look like a groundhog on the road is actually a mcdonald's bag personal story you may have entered the online dating world and the person's profile picture looked nothing like they really look like in person not my story but maybe one of yours the rustling in the woods as you're hiking a kickapoo, it might sound like a bobcat is going to attack, but it's actually a couple of chipmunks just playing. Or maybe you purchased a shoe from Stock X with their guarantee of authenticity, which they're actually being sued for, and maybe it looks a little bit like the picture right here. For those that can't see, the top left, it says Mike instead of Nike. Bottom left looks like Cheerleader or Air Jordan. Bottom right is definitely a pair of like 1990s church shoes with a check mark that says Nike. And instead of Adidas, it says ass."." And there are some people that bought those with full intention of it actually being the real brand, but it wasn't what it appeared to be. Or, and you can, thanks for taking that horrible picture off there. Or, to get even more practical, It's easy for us to be on in public arenas and to make it a regular habit to hide and suppress our real selves because we're afraid of what others might think of us if they know who we really are. Or welcome to the first date where you put on your best self and you hide the ugly self because you want the person hopefully across the table from you and not beside you. But you want the person across from you to understand more of who you are, but you try to hide the ugly part of who you are. And in particular, with the story that we read this morning of Jesus cursing the fig tree, it's often one that, like we said, is difficult for us to understand. It might not be what it may appear to be. And there are many scholars, many people who have observed the life of Jesus, and in particular, there's one popular atheist that grew up in church, and as he was searching to try to figure out who Jesus is, he came to this passage, and this is the passage he points to to say why he does not believe in God. And for many of us, as we read this particular miracle, for some of us, we can pause and think, Why in the world did Jesus do this? On a surface level, it could seem like Jesus had a hangry moment like many of us do, and that Jesus decided to tap into his divinity because he was really hungry, there wasn't fruit, and he had just a moment to curse the fig tree. And it seems as if, on the surface level, that Jesus didn't have any kind of meaning other than his hangriness. And even as Peter, a day later, notices that the fig tree had been withered, and Peter says, Rabbi, look, that tree that you cursed, look, it doesn't have fruit anymore. You did it. And even Jesus' response in verse 22 seems to not make any sense. And this was also the only miracle of Jesus that was destructive. All of Jesus' miracles ultimately led to healing, deliverance, life, etc. But in this instant, he caused a tree to die. Because from afar, this miracle seems odd and potentially troublesome. And I know for myself, even as I was preparing for this message, this was a miracle that to my soul seemed troubling that Jesus would react in an instant and for some reason decide to cause this tree that God had created to wither. And with the time that we have this morning and as we take a deeper dive into this text, my prayer is that we would actually begin to see the beautiful depths of what Jesus reveals through this miracle. And just remember, not everything is what it may be appear to be. That's not just about this story, but it's actually the moral within the story. So if you have your physical Bible with you or a digital one, that's fine, but you know me and my paper Bible. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 12. We'll walk through the passage a little bit and we will camp out there. So as you're turning there, the passage begins in verse 12 and says, the next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. And if we just stop at this point, we need to ask the question, what happened the day before? And if we look back in the passage to the beginning of Mark chapter 11, we see this thing called the triumphal entry. Or if you go back in the archive, like the week before Easter, there's this thing called Palm Sunday. So to give context to this miracle, Palm Sunday had just happened. Jesus triumphantly came into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, and the crowds are shouting Hosanna in the highest. That Jesus has come into Jerusalem to initiate what we call Passion Week. This is Jesus' last week on earth before he would ultimately fulfill what he had come to do by defeating death on a cross. And so the story goes that he enters Jerusalem, and as Mark says in Mark 11, verse 11, just one verse before our text this morning, it says, he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So let's just pause real quick and place ourselves in the midst of that story. Jesus fully knows what he's going to do. He knows that in approximately a week, the very people that were shouting Hosanna would eventually be the people who shout crucify him. And that as he walks into the temple, he knows what he's going to do, like the story we read this morning, and he stands in the midst of the temple. No one notices Jesus. He stands in the midst of the temple and he decides not to act in that moment. Because you think that Jesus knew what he was gonna do the next day. He absolutely did. And so Jesus is standing in the midst of the temple after the crowds were shouting praises of deliverance, and he's observing everything around him. I imagine that the very tables that he was going to flip were probably left there overnight because it's just an extra hassle to set up in the morning. Jesus was most likely well familiar with the things that were going to be happening And he stands in the midst of that temple. And because it was already late, he'd made a trip back to the town of Bethany to stay with his disciples. Then we get to our story, picking up in verse 12 again. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. That's good. Because Jesus was a man, which leads to my first point. As Nathan said last week, and I reiterate again, first thing we need to understand about this miracle is that jesus in this moment though he is going to the cross to fulfill his divine agenda that he is still fully human that jesus on his travels in the morning because you know like being welcomed as like the delivering king and doing all the things that he did the day before of course he's hungry even me mentioning hungry right now i'm already hungry And it's only 11.02, and lunch is still a while away. But Jesus is still in this moment fully human. And throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus, as we looked at last week and elsewhere throughout the Gospels, we know that Jesus often needs sleep. You'll see him retreating places to take a nap. He was napping in the middle of the boat. In John chapter four, he was worn out from his journey and he was thirsty, insert the woman at the well. And that Jesus, even after this story in Mark chapter 15, Jesus was so empty of strength after he had been whipped, beaten, and mocked on his way to Golgotha, he could not carry his own cross. Insert Simon of Cyrene, who had to help Jesus carry his cross. That Jesus, even in this moment, we need to reiterate again, Jesus is still fully human. And so the next day, he's getting ready to head back into Jerusalem from Bethany, and he was hungry. Let's continue on into verse 13. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Apparently, Jesus wasn't whispering, he had made it pretty loud and clear. Which leads to my second point. First, Jesus is still fully human. Second, And this one might blow your mind, so just let me explain, but this miracle is not about a fig tree. This miracle is not about Jesus just being really mad that the fig didn't have fruit because Jesus was hungry. Yes, he was hungry. But this particular miracle is not about the fig tree. Because it can seem on the surface like Jesus was hangry, and in his frustration, he decided to curse the tree. But as we dive deeper into the cultural, historical, and biblical context, we can understand that this miracle is actually pointing to something deeper. And as we even look at the order of this gospel, that Mark, to give some background information for us, that Mark wrote his gospel in particular to a Gentile audience, and he did so explaining some Jewish culture and background. So that the Gentiles could be welcomed into the story of God's people so they could feel like they are a part of God's family. And so as Mark organized his gospel or his account of the life of Jesus, he did this intentionally. So that his Gentile audience would be welcomed into some Jewish background. And for us this morning, we get to open our eyes to see a little bit of that background. So let me ask this question, because as we read and as Johnson read for us this morning in Mark 11, this miracle is actually broken up into two different sections. Like Mark didn't just put both the sections together. In verses 12 through 14, he curses the tree. And then you have to skip all the way to verse 20 before you see the results in the miracle. That the story of the cleansing of the temple is smacked in between. As Johnson read that or as you've read it, did that seem odd to you? But that this story is actually Mark beautifully adding this story to further bring out the reason why he did what he did with the fig tree. And then as I read and continue to do some more study on the background of of the Jewish culture, what they would have understood My eyes began to be open to what Jesus was really trying to accomplish. And that, once again, it wasn't about the fig tree itself. But the fig tree does bear symbolic importance. I'm going to ask a question that hopefully you can ponder. The fig tree is actually a tree that shows up often in Scripture. When do you think the first instance of the fig tree was throughout the narrative of Scripture? When was the first time that we heard of a fig tree? This is a fun little trick. If you're like hanging out with other Christians, you can use this one. Hey, do you know when the first fig tree showed up? It was actually in Genesis chapter three. Verse seven says, then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve were opened. Why? Because they had sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Their eyes were open and they were naked. So what did they use to cover themselves? Fig leaves, well done, church. (laughs) But throughout the Genesis account in the first three chapters, the fig tree is the only tree mentioned by name. Prior to what you may have learned in your children's Bible classes, what you have seen, heard, or whatever, Adam and Eve didn't necessarily eat from an apple tree. Though that's what's often depicted. But in the Genesis account, the fig tree is the only one that is mentioned by name. And so, for the Jewish audience and listener, as you read throughout that, that the fig tree here, they cut off the leaves and made coverings for themselves. This fig tree represented the covering of shame. That as they look to the fig tree and as they heard stories of the fig tree that their leaves were representing the covering of shame. And elsewhere throughout scripture, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 1 Kings 4 and Hosea 9, and I won't go through all of the scripture, but needless to say, in those accounts, the fig tree is used as a symbol of prosperity, that in Deuteronomy, God is leading the nation of Israel to the promised land, and the promised land is being described as a place that is flowing in both valley and hill, a land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, and pomegranates. In First Kings, it's talking about the reign of Solomon and how in the reign of Solomon there would be peace and that we would see rest in finding a place under a fig tree. And in Hosea, it talks about the prosperity of the nation of Israel and how it was like seeing the early fruits on the fig tree. So elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, we see in Genesis chapter 3, the fig tree is used as a symbol of covering of shame, but it's also used as a symbolic of prosperity. And then elsewhere throughout the prophets, and I know you weren't expecting this much about fig trees, but bear with me. Throughout the other prophets like Isaiah, Joel, Habakkuk, Haggai, and Micah, the fig tree was often used as a barometer of the physical and spiritual health of Israel. That as prophets heard and saw from the Lord, that as God gave these visions and words for the nation of Israel, that often a symbol of the nation of Israel's prosperity would ultimately be Like in parallel with the symbol of the fig tree that was used through what the Lord had given to the prophets. And I know that's been a lot about fig trees, but all of that to say and to reiterate that this story is not about Jesus being mad at a fig tree. But ultimately, the third point I want to make is that this miracle gets really personal. that as we looked in the Old Testament about the fig tree being an exact symbol of the nation of Israel and its, like, prosperity, that this miracle then becomes very personal to the audience that Jesus was with. Because as Jesus had cursed that fig tree, that that then wasn't an indictment on the fig tree, but it was actually in that moment of prophetic warning that Jesus used this miracle prophetically to point towards the prosperity or lack thereof spiritually of the nation of Israel. Because in this story, Jesus was hungry. Let's get back to the text in verse 13. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, Typically, if you see a tree with leaves, that means that there's fruit there. And so as Jesus is approaching this tree from the outside, from what looked to be a healthy tree, Jesus was hungry. He was like, okay, let's go after it. He walks, he gets closer and closer and closer, and then he gets under the leaves, and where there should have been fruit, there wasn't. Not everything is what it appears to be. And as Jesus was looking onto this tree, that it appeared that there was fruit there, but there wasn't. And this is the exact message that Jesus is preaching to the nation of Israel. That from the outside, they had every appearance that there was fruit. The leaves were looking good. The tree looked healthy from the outside. But when you get under the leaves and when you look for the fruit, it was barren. And that Jesus performing this miracle was a prophetic warning that the nation of Israel had the appearance of fruit, but no real fruit. Jesus elsewhere gives some pretty hard messages for the nation of Israel in regards to fruitless religion. In particular, if you want to look at this passage later with greater depth, I would encourage you to look at Matthew chapter 23. Jesus gives these woes to the Pharisees and is warning them of their fruitless religion. In particular, one verse I want to bring out to us is Matthew chapter 23, verse 26, and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. That's tough, because if we get personal once again, we often like to clean up the outside of our lives, and we don't do the deep work of cleaning the inside. We do the hard work of making it appear like we're bearing fruit, but on the inside, are we really bearing fruit? Or also, as John the Baptist says in Luke chapter 3, verse eight. Th- Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. That fruit doesn't come through just cleaning the outside of our lives, but fruit comes from abiding with him. And fruit comes with repentance, turning from our fleshly ways, ways that aren't honoring and glorifying to Jesus and choosing to abide in Jesus. And that as we choose to abide in him, that it is through abiding in him that the fruit comes doesn't come through our self-effort or through us making ourselves look more holy. And as I had mentioned earlier about the order that Mark gives this in, so Jesus in verse 12 through 14 curses the fig tree, which is a warning that I believe the disciples would have heard as a prophetic warning. And that then Mark follows that up with an exact example of what that looked like? Of what it looked like to appear good on the outside, but to be rotten on the inside and fruitless on the inside. Because then we get to the cleansing of the temple. Verse 15. Let's pick back up again. They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. This cleansing of the temple is a case study, giving valid credence to Jesus's prophetic miracle that what on the outside seemed like they were doing the Lord's work as Jesus reveals it that they were actually just trying to appear holy without the fruit of abiding in God so in this story the religious leaders were in the outer courts of the temple and they were selling overpriced sacrifices to the Gentiles the religious leaders were doing this. And these leaders were trying to make an unjust profit off of the Gentiles who had come to faith in Yahweh. And they were doing so in the name of the Lord. And if you remember in the sermon on prayer in our Cultivate series, Jesus was indignant that the religious leaders had turned his father's house into a den of robbers. And yes, this should be a house of prayer. And it's interesting that in verse 18, as I was studying this text, that the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. That it wasn't because Jesus flipped the tables, but it was because of what Jesus was telling about the interior of their life. And I know this is like cutting a, a little deep and that's honestly okay. Because often even for us, as we look to Jesus and as we seek to do the things that Jesus did, a lot of our focus becomes so focused on the exterior that we begin to lose sight of what God wants to do on the interior. continue on in the story in verse 20. Early in the morning as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. That when Jesus said previous in verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, it happened. No one would ever eat fruit from that tree. And it's interesting that the tree was withered from the root up. From the very beginning of the source of life for that tree that it began to wither from the root up. And so I know this message has been pretty heavy. But there's an antidote if we want to avoid just the mere appearance of holiness or just the appearance of righteousness, and if we want to bear fruit, there is a way moving forward. And Jesus actually gives that antidote to us in four words in verse 22. Because Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Because as Jesus prophetically gave this miracle to the nation of Israel, they had lost their faith in God and instead had placed their faith, security, identity, and foundation upon the practices of the Jewish religion and not on God himself. They had placed their faith in their self-righteousness. They had placed their faith in their rituals, their attending temple. They put their faith in things that ultimately weren't rooted in God himself. They had become enslaved to their religious system and to the obsessive necessity of appearing holy instead of doing the actual work of becoming holy. Which it's much easier to fix the outside and to put on a facade, put on a mask of, I've got my life together, I'm growing in righteousness. And you can quote scripture and memorize scripture without it actually soaking deep into the fabric of your being. And what Jesus invites his disciples and the nation of Israel to do here is to simply return to have faith in God, in his plan, in his goodness, his righteousness. And not feeling like we have to hide like Adam and Eve did in shame by covering up with fig leaves, that we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to do the hard work of just trying to appear holy, which that is just a rat race that will ultimately lead to you never being satisfied. The pursuit of appearing holy is not the pursuit that Jesus has welcomed us into We don't need to, like Adam and Eve, to alter perception and shame. We just need to trust God, have faith in God. And that as we have faith in God, we can trust his love, his forgiveness, and his freedom. So church family, as we close here, the challenge that Jesus gave to the nation of Israel is the same challenge for us that we would do the hard work of observing our own lives. As David said in Psalm 139, to search me, O God, and test my ways. Would we have times like this church family where we sit before the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus who is our friend, a good shepherd, our God who is gentle and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, May we sit before him, and may we enter into community where we can be able to link arms together, drop the fig leaves of just trying to keep the facade of some kind of exterior righteousness that doesn't match the interior of the depths of our soul, and would we before God eagerly seek to return to have faith in him and to let our fruit not come from our exterior works but to flow out of the interior of deep abiding with Jesus. Because eventually for the disciples who had seen this miracle, they were going to have choice time and time and time and time again. Were they going to abide in the religious system of the day or were they gonna choose to abide in Jesus? Because eventually, you fast forward to 70 A.D., and there is great persecution within the church. And for many who had put their faith in the religious system, their faith began to crumble because the religious system crumbled. But then you fast forward in the disciples who had chosen to abide deeply in Jesus, that though persecution and hard times came, that they were obedient to Jesus even to the point of death. Not because they were afraid of going to that other place, but because they had fallen so deeply in love with Jesus and they knew that his way was the way, the truth and the life. And they had experienced his love, though they weren't perfect. And we know that. We read throughout the scriptures. We know that the disciples were not perfect. We know that we're not perfect. Scripture's abundantly clear about that. But church family, it's about time that we quit trying to keep up a facade of righteousness, that we fix our eyes on Jesus, and that we all imperfectly together link arms together and choose to abide in him. And may the fruit of our abiding in him become the things that we exteriorly do and that the lost and dying world around us would see that there's something different about us here at Connection. That we would be people who connect deeply with Jesus. And that the fruit of our lives would be real fruit and not like the Mike shoe. That our faith would be authentic and real because we've chosen to have faith in God and not have faith in anything else. So may this miracle be a loving challenge for us to do that hard work and to understand that as you look to your left and right and behind you and forward, that we are all in this together and that we have people outside of this room who are pursuing Jesus in the way of Jesus together because it's very easy, and the enemy wants you to think that your struggles and your lot in life is one that is exclusive to you and that you are alone, but that we as a church family can come together, that we can drop the fig leaves, drop the facade, drop trying to cover some things in our lives that maybe we're ashamed of, and that we can do the hard work, and it is hard work, but to do hard work to be open. And vulnerable, because the only way of healing and restoration and moving forward is by being honest with ourselves. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So with the next minute or so, I just want us to spend a little bit of time with our God. And if you were with us this morning in our 915 class, we've already had practice with this, so we're just gonna continue doing the same. Let's just sit before Jesus and let's just ask him to maybe reveal some of the things in our lives that we've tried hiding. Whether it's shame, sin, brokenness, whatever that is, and ask Jesus to meet us in the midst of that. As a reminder, Jesus is gracious and he is loving And he wants to forgive you through the blood he shed on the cross that he actually gives us access to freedom. That when Jesus died on the cross, we no longer have to live in shame. That we can live in the newness of life. And that because of what Jesus did, scripture says that we are sealed in him.